Christmas time is the most wonderful time of the year. It's an objective fact. And uh, I'm up here so I get to say that. Uh, and it's a wonderful time for many reasons. Jesus, obviously, is the reason for the season, what he did for us. But beyond the religious, uh, many of us love the fact that Christmas brings family and fellowship and friends, food and fun. And Christmas music, of course. But for many, Christmas also brings the inexplicable joy of watching marathons of generic Hallmark Christmas movies. Now, I need you guys to be honest. Raise your hand if you enjoy watching Hallmark Christmas movies. All right, well, this sermon is not going to go over well. <laughs> there goes all of my illustrations. <laughs> All right, why don't we just skip this intro? <laughs> Took a risk. Did not pay off. From what I understand, you see one and you've seen them all, but you just can't stop watching. Uh, the movie typically follows a young protagonist, a successful woman from the big city, but she's got bad relational problems with her parents. Her boyfriend is a total jerk. And worst of all, she doesn't like Christmas. For some reason, she returns to her small hometown for Christmas. And all of her problems eventually are solved there. Uh, she falls in love with a local guy. And in the process, she also falls in love with Christmas. You can Google the Hallmark Christmas movie plot generator to build in a few permutations of that general plot. Now, I have to admit that I am a little bit ornery that there are about seven gazillion Hallmark Christmas movies on every Christmas, and yet no one has made a movie about Ruth in 60 years, as far as I can find. And it's too bad because Ruth is like the very best Hallmark movie ever made. It's better in every single way. You have a young and destitute widow who returns to her widowed mother-in-law's small hometown to eke out a living and to care for her. She eventually falls for a local farmer, and actually she goes and proposes to him. But wait, there's a love triangle Another potential suitor stands in the way between the love of Boaz and Ruth. Of course, Boaz eventually wins Ruth's hand in marriage and he makes her into the great-grandmother of King David and ultimately the ancestor of Jesus Christ himself. And all of this takes place at the very site of the very first Christmas, Bethlehem. You can't beat history for good stories. Well, that's the big picture. Today in our story, we pick up in the second act. We're picking up in chapter 2. Ruth and Naomi have arrived in Bethlehem. We are at the low point of the story. They are at their most helpless, but as we will see, God is working all things together for the good of his people. He's using the free actions of men and women to accomplish his glorious purposes. So pick up with me as we read the first Three verses of Ruth, chapter 2.
Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. Let's pray. O God, our gracious Father, we ask this morning as we approach your word that you would grant us understanding, and that in granting us understanding, we would have peace and joy in our hearts. Lord, would you speak to us through the preaching of your word? Use me to bring truth to your beloved children. We ask this in your holy and precious name. Amen. Our first point this morning is initiative and risk. The story begins, verse 1, we encounter a man named Boaz, a a worthy man in the ESV, or a man of standing. Uh, This means that Boaz is well-known, well-respected, and wealthy. And we find that he is a relative of Elimelech, Naomi's deceased husband. Well, at this point, we're just going to tuck all of that information away in the back of our minds because the story is going to drop off. Boaz has been placed out there. We wonder why he's there. We'll come back later on and find out. He doesn't show up again until verse 4. Now, for those of you who missed last week, let me encourage you to go back online and listen to the sermon so that you can catch up to where we are today. Uh, Last week, we saw that Naomi and Ruth have gone through some difficult times together. Uh, And by circumstances largely outside of their control, they find themselves without husband and without any real hope. Uh, Ruth, as Boaz will point out later, has lovingly pledged herself to Naomi and sought refuge under the God of Israel. She has uh, pledged loyalty to the one true God. And so we have a few questions here at the outset of the sermon. Will God honor this outsider who seeks to find refuge in him? Is God able to take care of those who seek him? Or, as Naomi assumes, is he actually working against them? Another question we see is, will Elimelech's family line die out with Naomi? Or is there some chance that Ruth might find a husband and that there might be an heir? Well, regardless of these overarching questions that we have here at the outset, uh, the Ruth and Naomi face the cold, hard reality of life for two widows in this day. Uh, they need basic sustenance just to survive, and they don't have it. And this is a time in history where there aren't exactly grocery stores, food banks, or EBT cards. Without husbands, they aren't exactly going to be provided for. But this is where Ruth continues to exhibit her remarkable character. Having converted to faith in the one true God, she is exhibiting the fruit of a saving faith. And one of the interesting things about the Old Testament is they are actually presenting Ruth as the personification of the wife of noble character from Proverbs chapter 31. 
That phrase, wife of noble character, or excellent wife, is only used in the Old Testament three times, twice in the Proverbs, and once of Ruth, here in chapter, well, in chapter 3, that's next week. And so when we come to this story, we're coming and we're intended to find Ruth as this portrait of a godly woman and a godly wife, eventually. And so we ask, well, what is it that makes Ruth so ideal? Well, like Paul's instructions we saw in 1 Timothy 2, this woman is an excellent woman because she adorns herself not with flashy clothes, but she adorns herself with good works. Everything positive about Ruth in this story has to do with her character, not her shape, not her fashion, nor her appearance. And we continue to see her character demonstrated through her actions. And from her actions, we're going to learn three things about Ruth that we didn't learn last week. First, she is an initiative taker. Secondly, she is also a bold risk taker. And thirdly, she works diligently. So she takes initiative, takes risks, and works diligently. And so we pick up in this story in verse 2. Ruth and Naomi have no food. But Ruth is no panhandler sitting and hoping for some miraculous rescue. She's no damsel in distress. What does she do upon arriving in Bethlehem? She immediately goes out and gets to work to care for her elderly mother-in-law. She says to Naomi, Naomi, let me go to the field and glean. And may I find eyes, may I find eyes, Uh, May I find favor in the eyes of whoever owns the field. So what is this this gleaning thing that we're talking about? Well, gleaning was a provision that God placed in the law that he gave to Israel because God has a heart for the helpless. And so what it was is if you were a landowner, if you had fields, you were not to harvest your fields all the way to the edges. But you were to leave portions of your fields unharvested. And if you sent your people through to harvest, they were not to go back a second time to get all the stuff that they missed. But rather, you were to leave the edges and corners of your field and all the scraps behind so that the poor and the foreigners in the land could come behind your harvesters and glean enough food to live on. Uh, Nobody was going to get rich from gleaning. It was a survival mechanism. And so we see God's heart for those who are most helpless written into the very law. You can think of these gleaners as day laborers. And so we're learning something important about Ruth here. Ruth, the Moabite widow, is at the very bottom of the social structure and the economic structure here in Bethlehem. And so she is going to go out and try to glean grain. Now, this would have been a very big risk for Ruth. There's nothing to say that any particular landowner would actually allow her to glean, just because it's the law, and particularly because she's an outsider. She is a Moabite. And as a single woman, Ruth going out into the fields full of men placed herself in physical risk, risk of harm. And yet, Ruth goes, takes initiative, and she works hard. And so as we continue, we 
uh, read verse 3, we find that verse 3 is actually using heavy sarcasm. If any of you are fans of using sarcasm, which I'm sure none of you are, uh, we find it right here in verse 3. Well, what are you talking about, Pastor? Well, well, read it with me here. It says this. Uh, she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come on the part of the field belonging to Boaz. She was gleaning, and she just happened to come to Boaz's field. Well, last week we discussed how God is absolutely in control of all things that take place. And yet this week the narrator is saying that Ruth just happened to end up in the field of Boaz. How does that just happen? Well, in the Hebrew it's an even more exaggerated joke. The Hebrew literally reads her chance chanced upon his field. You see, it was very important that Ruth would meet Boaz on that day. And you say, well, pastor, did she make the decision to glean in his field herself, or did God so orchestrate events such that she would meet Boaz? And the answer, of course, is yes. <laughs> you see, to Ruth, this would have had the appearance of a coincidence. She freely chose to glean in Boaz's field. But God used her action for his own purposes, that she would meet Boaz. From God's perspective, it was a carefully planned coincidence. You see, it's not unlike the story of Joseph in Genesis 38 to 50. If you recall, Joseph was sold by his own brothers into slavery in Egypt. And Joseph <clears throat> just happened to work his way up from the bottom rung of Egyptian society to become the second most powerful man in all of Egypt. And God used the sinful, wicked, free choice of his brothers to take care of Joseph's family when famine swept through the entire area. And Joseph, at the end of the story, looks at his brothers and says, you meant this for evil. You meant to do me harm. You freely chose to do me harm, but... God used it for good. You see, even when the wicked do wicked things, God can still turn them to fulfill his glorious and good purposes. And so we see Ruth, this remarkable woman, out of love for God and out of love for her mother-in-law, is going out to work hard to collect a living so they can survive. Let's continue reading to find out what happens next. Pick up with me in verse 4. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and has continued from early morning until now except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? 
But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done. And a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, If I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean. And do not rebuke her. Well, if this story were a Hallmark movie, which apparently nobody watches, uh, this would be the scene in which it is revealed that Boaz is not just a man of standing, but that Boaz is a good man. This would be the scene in which you find out that ever since his wife passed away, Boaz spends every Christmas feeding the homeless or operating a hospital for sick puppies or something sweet like that. Uh, If this were a musical, this would be the scene where uh, all the characters break out in song in the happy, jolly harvesting song. Because Boaz is a good man and also a great tap dancer. As we come to the text, we find that Boaz's servants love him. And as the chapter continues, you'll see why. He, he immediately shows up and he blesses his servants. He sees them and he says, the Lord be with you. Now, if you're a jerk, particularly to your employees, and you go up to them and you bless them, the Lord be with you, then you're going to get a very different response than the one that Boaz receives. But we see that Boaz is not a harsh taskmaster, but rather he uses his authority and his wealth for the good of his people. He's the boss who treats his people well, the boss that people want. He pays them what they're worth. He honors their hard work. And so when he shows up and says, the Lord be with you, they turn around and say, Boaz, the Lord bless you. And so he walks around, and as he's inspecting his harvesters, he notices a girl that he hasn't met before gleaning in his field. And he looks at his foreman, and he either says, whose young woman is this? Or he says, Whose young woman is this? (laughs) And if I were directing the Hallmark movie, it would definitely be the second one. But uh, Boaz was probably just recognizing someone out of the ordinary. And his foreman responds, he says, Boaz, that's the young Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. And not only that, but she has asked for the special favor of working right behind our reapers on the rest of the field. It was a bold request. And he says, Boaz, she's been here since this morning. And apparently Ruth's reputation had preceded her in a good way. Uh, She's the talk of the town and admired by at least one handsome Boaz. I don't actually know if he's handsome or not. 
But if I were going to cast him, we'd probably have George Clooney there. <laughs> At this point in the story, it's unclear whether or not Boaz has romantic intentions. Ruth is actually quite young in comparison to Boaz, which is why he calls her daughter. But what is very clear here is that Boaz is remarkably impressed by Ruth's character, her diligence, and her love for God, which is expressed by her love for others. And so Boaz is going to go above and beyond to show kindness and bless Ruth. And he's going to do this in three ways. First, in verse 8, he says this. He says, you don't need to go to anyone else's field. I'll make sure you get everything that you need right here in my field. And he says, stick with my young women for your safety. So he's not only doing what the law requires, but he's giving her most favored gleaner status. He's granting her protection and he's giving her access to the water which his servants drink. He's going above and beyond what is required of him for the sake of showing love. It's such a good story. And, and Ruth recognizes the grace of his actions. And she turns to him and read, read her response in verse 11. Oh, sorry. She turns to him and asks, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me? And, and look at Boaz's response. He says, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother and your native land and you came to a people that you did not know before. The roar, and he says, the Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Ruth is known by her deeds, and she's hard not to like. It was incredibly selfless for her to leave behind her family so she could come and take care of her mother-in-law. She could have gone home and remarried. And Boaz is pronounced, he's impressed and he pronounces this, this blessing. He says that the Lord himself will provide for, for her. The question of will God save those who seek refuge under him is being answered by Boaz. He says the Lord bless you. The Lord himself will provide for you. May he reward you according to your deeds. And he encourages her. He, he gives us this picture of God as a mother bird under whose wings she has sought protection and provision. And that surely God will honor her for seeking him. Well, you see what's happening here is that Boaz is speaking better than he knows. He doesn't yet realize that he himself will be the instrument of God's blessing both to Ruth and to Naomi. He will be the one through whom God redeems their sad story. Well, as we continue, we find the second way he blesses her. It's now lunchtime, and Boaz typically provides meals for his servants. You wouldn't typically provide a meal for gleaners. But he invites Ruth. He says, come and eat your fill, dip your bread in the wine, and he gives her so much to eat that she has her fill and even has a little leftover to bring home to Naomi. And then we see him bless her one last way on this day. 
They get up from the supper and he goes back to his servants again and he says, let her glean even among the sheaves and leave some bundles behind for her. You see, what was customary was this. What was customary is that the harvesters, the reapers, would go out into the field and they would do all of their harvesting. And only after they had done all of their harvesting would the gleaners then be allowed to go in and pick up the scraps and harvest the edges of the field. But what Boaz is doing here for Ruth is he is sending her out with his young female harvesters and she, instead of gleaning, is going to the unharvested portions of his field and getting the good stuff. She's not picking up scraps. She's getting the very best of the grain. You see, Boaz is going above and beyond, but in doing so, I would say that Boaz is just getting at the heart of the law. You remember when Jesus, when he summarized the law, he said, it's this, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that loving God with all that you are is manifested in the way that you love your neighbor as yourself. And what is Boaz doing here? He's recognizing a woman who has pledged her faith in the one true God. He's recognizing his neighbor and in in empathy and in love for his neighbor. He's taking care of her needs. He's doing what he can to help her. Which, if you're Boaz, is actually quite a lot. Now my hope for us as a church is that as Boaz represents Christ here, we could follow him in being and doing good for one another. That if somebody falls upon hard times, we as the church would be quick to go and help this person out. That if someone is sick, we would be quick to go and help a family out. That if someone is lonely or depressed, we would be quick to offer ourselves and our time to show love to those who need love. Of course that we would seek to show good to all people, but as Paul says, primarily to the household of God. I hope that we would represent the love of Christ not just with our words, but with the way that we love one another. Now, before I move on, since we are in this wonderful love story, uh, I just want to address the unmarried here today. I know we don't have a lot, uh, but first I'd like to say, men, uh, find yourself a girl like Ruth. Someone with a record and reputation for good works. Someone who's more concerned with caring for God's people than any of the other worldly pursuits that someone might have. Seek a a girl who worships Christ in Christ alone and who desires that her friends might come to know Christ. Find someone who's not seeking the trophy wife life, but someone who works and works diligently for God's glory and so that she might show kindness to those who are in need. Looks are something, but they are not everything. And most importantly, seek to become the kind of man in following Christ that a godly woman would want to follow. Ladies looking for a man, be careful about how you go about attracting one. If you seek to attract one by worldly means, then you will likely end up with a worldly husband. But follow the admonition of the Apostle Peter who said, don't let your adorning be external, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is 
very precious. Do you realize that Boaz, who is totally astounded by Ruth, he doesn't say in the entire book, he doesn't say a single thing about her appearance. She won him over by her actions. And if you would like a godly husband, then seek to be the kind of woman that would attract a godly man and don't settle for pretenders. Well, let's recap what's happened so far. Uh, The initiative and diligence and faith of Ruth has encountered the benevolence and kindness and faith of Boaz. And seeking to work hard to care for her elderly mother-in-law, Ruth has unwittingly stumbled into a mighty blessing of God. And so as we turn to our last point, we will consider now the scope of that blessing as we consider God's abundant grace. Turn with me to verse 17. So she, Ruth, gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her so she also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, "Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you." And she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, "The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz." And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, "May he be blessed by the Lord." whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young woman of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests. And she lived with her mother-in-law. On this day, Ruth found the field of Boaz to be far more fruitful for her than she ever imagined. She came in hoping to glean and perhaps leave with a small bag of grain. But she got much more than that, and there's still much more to come. Now, I did not grow up on a farm, and if you're like me, and you think that flour grows in bags on the supermarket shelves, then you probably don't know what it means when it says she beat out what she had gleaned. Uh, It means that she threshed the wheat. So there you go, now you know. Well, in my preparation, I realized that I still didn't know what that meant this week. And so I did my very best to uh, Google ancient threshing practices and do a little bit of more scholarly research. And I'm going to share with you what I learned. And if you happen to know more than me and you find that I am not exactly on target, uh, you can tell me afterwards, but nod your head right now. Uh, Apparently what this meant is after a day of collecting stalks of barley, because it was the barley harvest. Thank you, Ben. I know you you know what you're talking about. Uh, (laughs) She would gather these big stalks of barley, they would put them in sacks, and they would take a heavy rock and just beat the daylight out of these stalks. And in so doing, what they were doing is separating the little grains from the stalk. 
But then what you would have left over in the bag after pulling the stalks back out was barley grains and the chaff that came off the stalks. And so at that point, on a windy day, you would toss both the uh, grain and the stalks into the air, where the air, am I right, Ben? Okay. And the air would flow by, and the chaff would then go off into the wind because it was lighter, but the grain would then fall back down. And at that point, what you had was grain, and you still would have to go home and grind it into flour. So, after threshing, a poor gleaner could reasonably expect to take home a few handfuls of grain, perhaps a supply for a few days of food. Ruth, after threshing, after separating the grain from her stalks, brought home an entire ephah. How many of you know how much an ephah is? Well, to help you visualize, again, I had to look it up as well. Uh, to help you visualize, how many of you know how big a five-gallon bucket is? Right? So imagine a five-gallon bucket full of grain. And then imagine another gallon jug also full of grain. That's how much Ruth brought home from a single day of gleaning. And I just want you to take a moment and consider the goodness of God because God didn't just bless Ruth. He blessed her abundantly. And God doesn't just bless us. He blesses us abundantly. Apart from God's gracious provision, Ruth maybe is coming home with a few handfuls if she can avoid being assaulted in a field, as Naomi pointed out. But with God's blessing, she's eating good in the neighborhood. I wonder when's the last time Maybe you do this all the time. But I wonder when the last time is that you just sat down and thought of all the things, all the different ways in which God has blessed you and thanked him for it. I thought it was interesting, Warren Buffett, who, as far as I can tell, is not a Christian, and yet he pointed out that at least in the last 200 years, every generation has lived better than the one before it. That the average American today lives better with a higher quality of life than royalty throughout most of history. Just think about it. We've got better access to food. We have vehicles, medical science, which has greatly reduced disease, more entertainment, more information, indoor plumbing. Amen. I had a wonderful hot shower this morning. Think about this. As a pastor, I can afford to put my family in a machine that flies through the air so that we can be physically present for Thanksgiving with family that lives 1,200 miles away. Uh, we can control the temperature of our homes with a single press of a button. We can have food delivered to our doorstep without even getting off the couch, much less, much less going out and gleaning. God has been abundantly good to us, and we're just talking about physical things, right? We haven't even begun to scratch the surface of his kindness to us spiritually through his son, Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, we have much for which to be thankful. Well, we've entered the next part of the movie. After the protagonist has had her first encounter with the love interest. 
And perhaps at this point she doesn't even recognize him as the love interest. But Ruth returns home to Naomi and she's got this giant six-gallon bucket of grain on her hands. And she hands Naomi a nice piece of sourdough that's left over from lunch. And Naomi recognizes that things have gone way better than she was anticipating. She goes, what happened, Ruth? Where did you glean? Who did you meet? Who did you rob? (laughs) And Ruth smiles, and she says, I met a guy, a guy named Boaz. And now we've entered the girl talk scene. Not that I know anything about that. Naomi replies, Boaz? And it's at this point that Naomi comes to recognize that perhaps the hand of the Lord is not against her. Or Naomi recognizes that Ruth's decision to glean in Boaz's field may have seemed arbitrary to Ruth, but in reality it was a kindness from the hand of God. It had to be Boaz. And she points out why. Because the man is a close relative, she says. The man, Boaz, is one of our redeemers. He's a relative of Elimelech. And he thinks very highly of you. And Naomi starts to think. She says, Ruth, you should continue harvesting. And Ruth, it would be good for you to continue harvesting with his young women. And so Ruth does. And the barley harvest, which lasted about a month, is followed by the wheat harvest, which lasts about a month. And so for roughly two months, Ruth worked diligently alongside Boaz's young female servants. And it's not hard to imagine that she experienced similar success and was able to put away enough food for both her and Naomi for the entire year. And meanwhile, Naomi's matchmaking gears started to turn in her head. And she started to formulate a master plan. But you're not going to find out about that plan until next week. (laughs) Cliffhanger. You could read ahead, which I can't knock you for. But you want to come back because if you love romance and happy endings and Jesus, then you need to come back for the next two weeks. Because there is no love story better. Okay, there might be some. But this is a great love story between Boaz and Ruth. So I just want to briefly talk about this kinsman redeemer idea. Uh, what is a kinsman redeemer? She says Boaz is our redeemer. Uh, well, Boaz is a historical person, and yet he is also presented here as a type of a much greater redeemer yet to come. You see, Boaz will redeem Ruth and Naomi from destitution and childlessness. But the one who Boaz points to will redeem his people from their sins. You see, you cannot come to the story of Ruth and fail to recognize how even Ruth is intended to teach us of Jesus. Uh, The kinsman redeemer was his brother's keeper. He was basically responsible for setting things right for a family member if something had gone wrong in his family. And it usually came at great cost to himself. For example, if 
a cousin fell on hard times and had to sell off a piece of land to make ends meet, then the kinsman redeemer eventually would go buy that property and bring back his inheritance to his cousin. If another family member was on hard times and forced to sell himself into slavery, then the kinsman redeemer would pay the ransom to redeem that person from slavery. The kinsman redeemer is also the same word that the Old Testament uses for the avenger of blood. And in that day, if someone was in his family was murdered, the law had a provision that the kinsman redeemer, the avenger of blood, fixed the injustice of a murderer gone free by bringing that murderer to justice. Here in Ruth, we see that Boaz, as the kinsman redeemer, has the opportunity to set things right for his dead relative Elimelech and his son Malin. Their family line is at risk of extinction, as is their family inheritance. And he has the opportunity to set things right. When we turn to the New Testament, we find Jesus who is presented to us as our Redeemer. And there's an incredible richness to this imagery, which we can only fully understand when we turn back and look at the Old Testament. And when we do this, we realize this. That if Jesus is our Redeemer, then it means that in some way we need redemption. And so it is that the good news always starts with bad news, but the bad news is true news. I think I mentioned this last week, but my, my wife and I, last week or two weeks ago, we watched a new Christmas movie with Will Ferrell and Ryan Reynolds. And um, the basic question, the the overarching question that this movie is asking is this, can a person redeem themselves? Can a person through many virtuosic actions, can they through their own efforts balance the scales and overcome all the wrong that they've done in their life? And the answer that the movie comes away with is yes, of course, a person can redeem themselves. No one is unredeemable because anybody can try really, really hard to be good. The Bible presents a different picture of humanity. The Bible denies this. It says that every single one of us who's ever been born is in need of redemption in more ways than one. You may not be a physical slave, but through your sin you have sold yourself into spiritual slavery. And sin is a harsh and unyielding master, promising everything but delivering little. And the pathway to freedom is not the day that we decide we're going to redeem ourselves, but it's the day that we wake up and we recognize that there is no hope for us to redeem ourselves. That there is no escape from our spiritual slavery. You see, our position before God is far worse than the destitution faced by Naomi. We cannot help ourselves. We need a redeemer to pay the ransom for our freedom. We need someone to redeem us. The problem is we owe a debt that no man can pay, especially not ourselves. There is no currency by which a man may appease a holy God. Your antagonism and rebellion against your creator carries with it the penalty of death. That is the cost of crossing the creator of the universe. We may not like it, but it is true. But the good news and the reason that Christmas 
is such a joyful time is not just that there was a baby born. There have been lots of babies born throughout history and we are not celebrating their births 2,000 years later. The good news of Christmas is what that baby boy grew up to be and what he did. Born a king and born to die. The good news is that God, out of love for you, provided a redeemer. In a strange and beautiful turn of events, the avenger of blood, rather than demanding immediate justice against you, has instead taken your punishment onto himself. He's offered himself in the place of sinners. Jesus Christ, the God who was offended, himself went to the cross for sinners, and it is there that he paid the debt that his people owed. And it is through his precious blood that he has bought us, that he has paid our ransom, that he has bought us from spiritual slavery and satisfied God's just wrath against us. You see, Jesus is our redeemer, has paid the price that we owed, but it came at a steep cost. His death on a cross. This is the heart of the Christian message. This is why Christmas is good news. Christ died in our place so we could be forgiven and reconciled to God. He has redeemed us from our sins. And this is the message which is preached from Genesis to Revelation in the scriptures. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, as Paul says, of whom I am the foremost. But here's the catch. Jesus is only Savior and Redeemer to those who recognize they need a Savior and a Redeemer. Only to those who have the humility to approach Him empty-handed, demanding nothing and pleading for His grace. There is no other posture one can take before the God of the universe. Ruth herself will not find redemption until she so seeks it in chapter 3. And it's really cool and you should be back here next week for it. But Christ will be of no benefit to you until you seek the redemption which he freely offers. The redemption that we cannot earn ourselves, but which he freely offers to us as a gift. If you think the generosity of Boaz, this kinsman redeemer, is impressive, I can assure you that the generosity of the redeemer to which he points to is far greater. It's a greater love a greater sacrifice, and a greater goodness. His goodness is infinite and his joy is greater than anything else you can find on earth. Well, this week we'll have to press pause on our Hallmark movie. We've just now reached the halfway point. We just finished Girl Talk after meeting the love interest. God has blessed Ruth's boldness her diligence and her kindness, her love for God. And he's provided an abundance of food for her and Naomi, but their problems are not over yet. There still remains the problem of childlessness. But God is far from done showing his abundant goodness. God's blessings are going to snowball down a hill. And the blessings that he pours out in their lives will have massive ramifications for them, for Israel, and even for you. And we'll pick up with this story next week. Let's pray.